Canterbury Tales, Chapter 9, Wild Encounters. A number of wild creatures have charmed, entertained and amazed us over the years, and one of the earlier ones was Morty the Vole. We have a policy of not allowing wild guests in the Red Barn, nor wild creatures to become guests on Warwick's farm. However, like with most rules, there is always the exception. Morty the Vole became an exception. It was a summer's, sunny summer's day, and Elaine and I, after a nice lunch of salad sandwiches, full of our beautiful, sweet and juicy homegrown tomatoes, decided to visit the new additions to Poultry Lane. A couple of young silver seabright bantam chickens that had arrived the day before. Seabrights are a very rare breed named after Sir John Seabright, who was instrumental in the development of the breed at the turn of the 18th century. He crossed the laced Polish fowl with bantams in an attempt to replicate the beautiful plumage of the laced Polish chicken on as small a bird as possible. It took him 20 years to finally achieve his goal, the two beautiful silver seabright specimens we had before us, with the beautiful fine black lacework on their small white bodies. However, over this long period of interbreeding and crossing, he unfortunately bred all their nurturing instincts out of them. So now they lay a few eggs, will not sit on them, and if you incubate the eggs for them, and proudly deliver the hatchlings to them, they will attack them. It is no wonder these beautiful chooks are, uh, are a rare breed. Like all successful people, Sir John, once the silver sea brights were on the ground, reset his goals, and it was not too long before the even more eye-catching gold sea bright arrived. It was not many months later that we took on the golds with their beautiful lacework, set against a feathery background of deep gold colouring. So we were very busy admiring our new feathered friends when we noticed this little rodent quite happily standing in the coop, as if he too was enjoying a relaxing Sunday afternoon. Opening the door, we expected it to quickly dart away to safety, but instead it stayed exactly where it was, watching us with interest. When I reached in, now fully expecting an urgent retreat, it remained still and, while not actually climbing into my hand, made no fuss when I picked it up, and with a grin, offered it to Elaine, who quickly backed away. The small little fellow, who sat quite, quite comfortably in my palm as we went to show the boys and Bruce, after repeated pleas to keep him, we reminded the boys of the farm rules regarding wild creatures, and we placed him nice and safely in a lush paddock far away from his feathered friends and left him to his life. Later that afternoon, as I approached the Seabright coop while feeding the chickens along Poultry Lane, I wondered how the funny-looking little mouse with the round ears was faring. Moments later, I was able to ask him, ask him as he was back where we found him sitting happily between the two slightly bemused-looking Seabrights. He was a determined-looking fellow, who had travelled a fair distance on his tiny legs in search of his new friends. Obviously a social animal in need of company, we decided to let the boys have their wish and set him up in a comfortable cage in the younger boy's room, where he was christened Morty. Intrigued as to what he officially was, with his dark colouring and roundish ears, we did some research and discovered that he was a vole, commonly known as a field mouse, though not actually a mouse at all. Belonging to the genus Microtus, there are 240 varieties in the vole group, including lemmings and muskrats, we discovered. We thought it was most fitting that some of Warwick's farm's wildlife also included different and intriguing creatures. It did not take long for this tiny creature to start growing. In fact, he was eating so much and getting so big after a few weeks that we thought there may be a problem. We discovered, though, that voles can eat the equivalent of their body weight in 24 hours. He was not quite the cute little fellow anymore that had so enchanted us. In the interest of his heart health, we provided him with a treadmill for his cage, so we could burn off some of his excess weight at the same time, reconsidering whether we should have broken our rule about wild creatures after all.
Morty started to become pretty manic on his treadmill, with the boys complaining about the constant humming coming from the cage all hours of the day and night. I idly suggested to Elaine that maybe we could somehow harness the energy he was generating, perhaps power the boys' room, and sell the excess back to the main grid. An unimpressed Elaine told me that Morty was becoming scary and might have to go. Looking down at Morty, now a dark, furry ball of energy, we asked the boys what they thought about releasing him back to the wild, so they could have their nice, quiet room back. They not so reluctantly agreed, and Cody reached into the cage to pick him up. With a yelp, Cody stepped back as Morty, having buried his teeth into Cody's finger, was now made a break for it and landed with a loud plop on the floor. Before anyone could react, he had scaled the curtains like a mountaineer on speed and was skillfully running along the top of the curtains, curtain railing, before stopping to catch his breath. Having honed my animal catching and recapturing skills over the years, I grabbed the waste paper basket with one hand, emptying its contents all over the floor, and grabbing the curtains, swung them up and over Morty and bundled the portion I hoped Morty was caught up in into the bin, calling out for someone to get me some of our welder's leather gloves. Moments later, we had Morty the Vole clutched tightly in the teeth-proof gloves and on his way to the furthest boundary of the farm, as per Elaine's, who was busy doctoring to Cody's finger instructions. As I said farewell to this once delightful rodent, it occurred to me that destiny had forewarned us of this fateful outcome. We had named him Morty the Vole, which was pretty damn close to that famous fictional master of evil, Vole de Mort. Some of our interactions with wild animals have been quite short-lived encounters, including the time I came across an opossum fossicking under the oak trees near the guinea pig hutches at the back of the gardens. Possums are nocturnal creatures, and apart from roadkill are rarely seen in the daytime, so I was quite surprised to see this obviously confused or perhaps sick one, and hastened inside to grab my video camera. Quietly returning, I very slowly approached it, not wanting to scare it off, but wanting to get close enough for some good footage. It was a little on the smaller side of average and had a thick brownish-black pelt. And after a bit more fossicking among the golden autumn leaves, it began to turn towards me. I froze, trying to blend in with the background, hoping not to startle it and watch it race away. To my amazement, it stared right at me and made no attempt to flee. Inching forward, I was still expecting it to make an urgent break for cover, and as I came closer, I noticed its pink unseeing eyes looking through me, not at me. The possum's snout was sniffing frantically as though it sensed that something had entered its environment that was foreign and most likely a threat to it. After a good minute or so of aiming my lens at him, as we stared each other down, I decided that a bit more action was needed for my documentary film, so I again started inching forward. I got closer to him than I expected before I elicited a response, and that was his instinctive inbuilt alarm to shinny up the nearest tree and out of danger. According to his security defence system, the nearest horizontal object, showing tree-like characteristics, was me, and he then attempted to scurry his way up my trouser leg, propelled by his very sharp claws. Like all intrepid documentary makers, I filmed for as long as was painfully possible before politely explaining, by way of widely kicking legs, that I was in fact not a tree. He then scurried away in the opposite direction, and my lens followed his descent high into the nearest official tree, an old oak. The family derived many moments of viewing pleasure watching the video, especially the jerky shots of leaves, sky and legs that was accompanied by a soundtrack of unmanly-like yelps and curses. Two days later, I sadly discovered my furry film star buddy lying on the side of the highway, staring up at me with his pink eyes, a victim of a sensory deprivation and 
faulty security defence system. We have our share of seasonal visitors from the wild, like a pair of blue heron, who nest at the very top of the highest pine tree behind the hay barn every year, and delight us with their graceful gliding on the thermal wind currents way above. The swallows, following their amazingly long trip from the northern hemisphere, appear to take great pleasure in flying round and round the red barn every year, before returning to their mud nest we discovered one day, built under a collapsed edge of the earth bank, bordering the water race. A native New Zealand wood pigeon, the Keraroo, before the earthquakes, was another regular visitor. This large, magnificent-looking bird used to spend a couple of weeks feasting on the nectar from our kawai trees and getting drunk on the overripe plums on the wild plum trees bordering our farm. The Keraroo mysteriously always arrived alone each year, but was obviously a sociable bird, as far as for most of the time it was here, it really wanted to hang out with our fantail pigeons. Being so much larger than our pigeons, all it managed to do with its friendly flybys was to terrify and intimidate them. They would take off as a flock and settle somewhere further afield, and sometimes, if the overtures continued, somewhere much further afield. We had once seen a hawk dramatically take out one of our pigeons that was flying quite high, like an air-to-air missile, so they were very wary of larger birds in their airspace. We wondered whether this alienation had made the poor thing take solace from the fermenting plums. As mentioned previously, we are always alert to any possible threats to our creatures, and one of our methods is to use rat traps. Now this day I was not a rat caught. One of these traps lies between a couple of the coops on Poultry Lane, and is a long rectangular plastic structure with a ramp that the dastardly rat walks up to retrieve the bait, which is at the other end behind a metal observation grill. As the rat reaches the top of the ramp, it overbalances and drops down, allowing the rat access to the bait, but no means of escape. As I walked along the lane one day, I had a feeling that I was being watched, as if eyes were following my every move. Seeing nothing, I continued on my way, but still couldn't lose that eerie feeling of being observed. On further investigation, I discovered a baby wild rabbit, while exploring its new world, had decided to investigate the bait, and was lucky that I had happened to have passed. It was only, I guessed, five or six weeks old, and retrieving it from the trap, I held it tightly in my hands. It did not appear to be in any great distress, apart from the fact that it was being gripped by an ugly, furless monster. Being used to handling our variety of trusting rabbits, I had to remember to keep a firm grip on it, as trudging across the farm, I decided to release it across the border to the relative safety of McNasty's dairy farm. A fairly recent incident involving wild bird life happened early last summer, but in a slightly more domestic setting than usual. The barbecue area that I mentioned earlier is under cover and there is a large sideboard set up along one wall adjacent to the dining area. The sideboard is used for plates, cutlery and so on and on its several shelves are a variety of vases and pottery jars and sundry knick-knacks. Having picked up either a nick or a knack that had fallen from it onto the ground I idly mentioned it in passing to Elaine. She informed me that this had been happening a lot recently and, it, and something must be getting up there and dislodging them. Concerned about the safety of particularly the lovely pottery jars, and thinking maybe the opossums are occasionally here occasionally lurking past our adjacent bedroom window with the culprits, I decided further investigation was merited. Everything seemed in order, I couldn't detect any possum droppings, and so I stood back to review the situation. It was in that I heard the very soft, sweet sound of hatchlings chirping. I quickly traced the sound to a large orange pottery jar with a wide body tapering to a narrow neck, the type of thing you would find in an ancient pyramid, I imagine. At the bottom of which, nestled in some straw, I found four bright yellow French horn-type instruments 
attached to pinky bodies, emitting this high-pitched and rather urgent peeping sound. Four newly hatched starlings were waiting to be fed. This was the most interesting nest I'd discovered so far, and certainly the safest and warmest. I decided to settle back in the chair and very quietly wait for Mother Starling to arrive. Judging from the urgency of her babes, she couldn't be far away. No more than ten minutes later she arrived, her mouth, full, her mouth laden with a succulent wriggling morsel, and carefully positioned herself for a helicopter-style landing, and only dismissing hitting a wooden pepper grinder, she disappeared into the jar. I congratulated myself on having the presence of mind to stay and await this curious event, and then cursed myself for not having the presence of mind to make sure that I had a video camera with me. We decided it was best to leave them where they were, for now, and for the next three weeks we maximised the situation, and it became a highlight of the farm tours as I brought the guests over to the jar and let them marvel at these fast-growing birds. The day Judy arrived, though, when, when they were finally feathered, fully feathered, and the jar smelled particularly funky, that they had to leave home and venture off into the wide, wonderful world. Normally Mother would nudge them out of the nest, and as they fell, their wings would open, and the miracle of flight would be experienced for the first time. However, as they were deep in the bottom of a jar, this was not an option. After waiting until they had been fed and Mother was still in the vicinity, I reached in and scooped them out. One by one they jumped out of my open hand and with wildly flapping wings each of them crashed into a nearby hedge. Five minutes later, Mother Starling had had them assembled and they were at last seen flapping and fluttering away high up into the oak tree. I watched them fly away with mixed emotions, not realising how fond I had become of them and how the tours would lose something now that they had gone. Then I smiled to myself as I thought how lucky I was, and of how few people in their workaday life would have been able to share such an intimate experience with a family of starlings.